Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the Donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver Sermon Audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Well, good morning. Good to see each and every one of you here today. It's a blessing to be gathered again. It's good to see Stephen Deb back. We need to make a silicate there so we can put them there every Sunday there. I trust that you've had a good week, that the Lord's been faithful to each and every one of us as he always is and always has been, always will be. I thank you, Nathan, for your leading. I think it fits right, a, a very good foundation for what we address today. Bow your head with me in prayer and we'll begin. Father, we thank you for another day and for your goodness and faithfulness to us. Father, all the things that you have done for us, that we take so much for granted each and every day, the breath, the health, the life, those we live with, those that we get to fellowship with. Father, we are very grateful and thankful that we have a God who condescends so low to us. We're thankful that we have a God who will always love us and never forsake us. We thank you, Father, that for your promises, that, Father, that we can glean, that we can claim, that we can believe we thank you for the promise of your soon return and how we long that that promise would be fulfilled. Father, I pray that you'll help me as I speak. I pray for clarity of mind and speech. I pray that you'll help the people to hear and to listen. And Father, I pray that it may not be just for an hour, but Father, I pray that you'll help us to take it home. Help us to live what we hear today. We praise you. We thank you. Those who are not with us today, we ask that you'll watch over them, protect them. And that, Father, if you give us another Sunday next week, that, Father, that we would enjoy fellowship with them. Father, we ask for the Holy Spirit's help and his power as we open your word, as we talk about some things. May it not be in vain without him. Father, we just pray for your grace and mercy in your name. Amen. You may be like I am. I can't remember a lot of times a whole message. If you would ask me what Kip may preach on any given Sunday the next day or two, I probably wouldn't be able to tell you about the whole thing. But what I try to do is I try to listen for one truth that I can take home. I love quotes because I can take a quote and I can remember that one line. And I can apply that one line much easier than I can a whole paragraph. So today, I believe what I'm going to be giving is, is going to be very important for our lives. And 
I would ask that perhaps you would ask the Lord to just give you that one nugget, hopefully, that you could take home. And that you would remember, not tomorrow, not next week, but that it would become part of our life. And that we would live it daily in honor and glory to the Lord. We're going to be in a dark chapter this morning as our foundation. Again, I want to thank Nathan because I think what he gave was just right, right, on, right on cue. If you want to turn your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11, I'm going to read that chapter. And we're going to be talking about David and Bathsheba today, a very dark, unfortunate chapter. It's one that wish it wasn't even in Scripture, but it is for our admonition and for our, for our um, warning. So if you will, Second Samuel 11, chapter, uh, verse 1, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rab- Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw the roof from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booze, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. In the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rise, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near to, to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerusalem, 
Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall he say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. We won't read it, but chapter 12 deals with Nathan coming to David and pointing out his sin, telling David that thou art the man. This is King David. This is the sweet psalmist of Israel. This is the forerunner of Jesus Christ himself the one who God had set his love upon. This is a man that we see as a great king, a great warrior, so many victories, and a spotless character until now. And now, anytime you ask somebody about David, most people have answered me this way. There's one or two answers. When you ask who David was, they say David and Goliath or David and Bathsheba. And David and Bathsheba is a black mark that, as we have read, will be with him until eternity. I don't know about you, but I'm very glad the Lord hasn't written a book, anything that I have done like this, so others could read it. It's very sad about David, but... It's something that you and I have to be very aware of. Because David, a man after God's own heart, was a sinner, just like we are. We're going to be in Psalm 51. And this this is where we're going to spend the remainder of our time. Sin, to our moral sense, is like natural gas to our sense of smell. Natural gas, within a minute of smelling it, deadens your sense of smell. So you can't smell it. Your house could be full of gas and you never smell it because it deadens your sense. That's what sin does to our moral sense. It deadens our moral sense. We have to be very, very careful. We all naturally belong to the generation of the blind people who have eyes and the deaf who have ears. In coincidence with these general views, Brooks says, no sin can be little because there is no little God to sin against. Bunyan, near death, said, no sin against God can be little because it is against the great God of heaven and earth. But if the sinner can find out a little God, it may be easy to find out little sins. John Owen He who has slight thoughts of sin never had great thoughts of God. Luther, from the error of not knowing or understanding what sin is, 
This necessarily arises another error that people cannot know or understand what grace is. The very names of sin should awaken us in uneasiness and alarm. Sin means a missing of the mark. It is transgression. It is a lack of conformity to the law. It is iniquity. It is unrighteousness. It is evil. It is wrong. It is hurtful to God, hateful to God. It, dis- <clears throat> it discussed all the evil, evil threatened against it or brought upon it. It has dug every grave. It tells hell, it, or excuse me, it fills hell with groans. What is our attitude towards sin? I'm afraid, and we recently heard a message on Second Samuel 11, and I'm afraid it's true that many times we justify our sins because, well, he did it. Well, they did it. Well, he was guilty of it. So I'm not that bad. What is our attitude? What are our thoughts about sin? How often do we confess our sin before the Lord? Do we even know what our sins are? And there again, in Hebrews chapter 12, it talks about the besetting sin. And I'll be honest with you, over the years, I've had that exact attitude, thought, well, God says that I have a besetting sin, so the sin that, it, that does beset me isn't all that bad because God said I have it. Yeah, okay, I admit it. Yes, I do have it. But what do I do with it? What do I do about it? Pilgrim's Progress. If you've never read it, I would highly recommend you read John Bunyan's book. Two characters, faithful uh, Christian's companion on his journey to the celestial city. And they, faithful, is talking to a character named talkative. Talkative is somebody who can talk very well about everything and anything. Talkative is someone who puts on a good show, but is as, as dead as a dead man's bones. What he says is not what he does, and vice versa. He is not reputable. It's someone that you should stay away from, as what Christian told Faithful. But Faithful says, and they've been talking, well, if you will, we will fail to it now. And since you left it to me to state the question, let it be this. How doth the saving grace of God discover itself when it is in the heart of men? Talkative. I perceive then that our talk must be about the power of things. Well, it is a very good question. I shall be willing to answer you and take my answer in brief thus. First, whence the grace of God is in the heart, it causeth there a great outcry against sin. Secondly, nay, hold, faithful says, let us consider of one at, at once. I think you should rather say it shows itself by inclining the soul to abhor its sin. Talkative, why? What difference is there between crying out against and abhorring of sin? Faithful, oh, a great deal. A man may cry out against sin of policy, but he cannot abhor it but by virtue of a godly antipathy against it. I have heard many cry out against sin in the pulpit, who yet can abide it well enough in the heart, house, and conversation. 
Joseph's mistress cried out with a loud voice as, as if she had been very chaste, but she would willingly, notwithstanding that, have committed uncleanness with him. Some cry out against sin, even as a mother cries out against her child in her lap when she calleth it a naughty girl and then falls to hugging and kissing it. We cry out against our sin, but do we abhor it? Do we hate our sin? God does. All we have to do to look at how much God hates sin is the cross. And what he allowed our very Savior, Jesus Christ, to go through and how he suffered for that sin. Do we abhor sin? Do we hate our sin? Psalm chapter 51. I'm going to kind of break this chapter up into three different parts. It's not going to be an an exhaustive study. It's just going to be three, bring out three things that that I saw in this. So verses 1 through 6, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Verse 5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. My first point is David's nature, a falling nature, a nature that we all have, falling from Adam. And I think it's very important that we realize and understand it's not what we do necessarily, it's what we are. So often I think Christians make, the, make a uh, failing point in trying to uh, f- ask forgiveness for the sins that we commit, which that's good and right. We've been taught that every time you make a, that you do a sin, you ought to write it down. And then at night, get that list out and go through it and ask God to forgive you for all those sins. But David says, forgive me for secret faults. You realize that there's things that we commit against God that we're not even aware of. Our secret faults, things that God hates that we do that perhaps can put a barrier between us and God. It is the nature, the whole nature of man is affected by sin. The understanding is darkened, the will is corrupt, the conscience is defiled, the memory is polluted, the imagination is depraved, the throat is an open sepulcher, the tongue is deceitful, the poison of ass is under the lips, the mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, the feet are swift to shed blood, the eyes are full of adultery. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Men yield their their members, servants to uncleanness. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it. Do we realize how sinful we are? Do you realize, I've thought about this, 
there's not one good person in here. No matter how good of Christian you think you are, you're not that good. No matter how others see us, it's deceived. It's tainted because of our falling nature. And because of our falling nature, any sin is open to you and I. You and I are capable of doing the most unimaginable thing possible. Well, I would never do that. I can't do that. I would never be caught doing that. One of the worst things we can say is never. We have to be very careful because we are our nature fallen and tainted. And we are, and if all of us were, were honest, I believe all of us would have to say, I enjoy sin. Because if we didn't enjoy sin, we probably wouldn't do that which may be in our thoughts even now. Sin is pleasurable for a season. Isn't that what Scripture says? It is fun. We, we because of our nature, we do enjoy that sin. But how, in fact, let me say this, I believe we talk about dedication and a heart for God to the degree that we abhor our sin, to the degree that we fight sin, I believe to that degree you are devoted to God. You're dedicated to God. We can't live with sin and live for God. We can't do that. We must fight it. There's two types of sin that I'm going to categorize this morning. And hopefully you'll, you'll understand this. The first one is a sin of impulse. The sin of impulse. That's when, how many times I've been singing a scripture song, one of our songs we sing, and all of a sudden, a wrong thought comes into my mind. Out of, out of the clear blue. I don't know where it came from. I'm trying to keep my heart and my mind stayed on God. And all of a sudden, here I have this thought. Or something happens. I'm going down the road, driving to work or wherever I'm going. And I may be listening to a message or they're again singing. And all of a sudden, somebody cuts me off. And before I know it, I'm saying things out of my mouth that a Christian shouldn't be saying. Our thoughts, our words... Our attitude, somebody does us wrong and immediately we, we lash out in anger. Where's that come from? I'll be honest, I didn't get up this morning and say, okay, now let's see at noon, I'm going to get angry with my wife. Let's see at three o'clock today, I'm going to say something that I know I shouldn't say. We don't do that. It just comes because of our nature and it happens to all of us. But those little sins, those impulses are seeds for wrong. It's been said, you sow a thought, you reap an action. When lust gets you, reason and conscience go away. J.R. Miller says this, we are apt to underestimate little failures in duty. 
It seems to us a small matter that we do not keep an engagement, that we lose our temper, that we say an impatient or angry word, that we show an unkind or harsh spirit, that we speak uncharitably of another, that we treat someone with discourtesy or fail in some other way which appears trivial. We think that so long as we are honest, faithful, and loving in, in the larger things, that it of small importance that we make little slips. But we can never tell what may be the consequences of our, our failure, even in the most minute duty. A little slip hurts our own life. It leaves us a little weaker in our character, a little less able to resist the next the next temptation that comes at the same point. It breaks our habit of faithfulness and makes it easier for us to break it a second time. We sin against ourselves when we relax our diligence or our faithfulness in even the least thing. Then we do not know what the consequences to others will be. When we fail in their presence, an outburst of temper in a Christian may hinder other Christians excuse me, may hinder many others in their Christian life. The failure of a Christian minister to pay a little debt may destroy the minister's influence over many in his church. The little things, those little sins. But those little sins lead to, if not instantly mortified, if we're not instantly on guard against the wiles of the devil, the wiles of our nature. It will go to the second category, classification, whatever you want to call it. First was impulse, the second is premeditated. Premeditated. It's those sins that we allow to grow. Those sins that we, that thought that we harbor that we allow it to develop, just like a flower that buds when it blooms and you see all those petals. They started with just that one small impulse thought. And now, because we have allowed it to grow, now it has so, many, so much more devastation in it. In Second Samuel, you don't need to turn back there, David had a progression. In verse 2, David saw. Then David sent. Then David took. Then David sent for Uriah. And last, David murdered. It all started with a look. And we can't help many times at what we see. We live in a sin-sick world. We live in a, in a sex-crazed, immoral world. And so many times there's things that maybe on TV or whatever, we see something that, that is wrong and we look away. But there's other times when we see something and it starts becoming a thought. And what was that saying? A thought produces an action. David saw Bathsheba. He didn't have to keep looking. He didn't have to watch her bathe. He could have turned around and went back inside and he could have forgot about it. He could have asked God for help to, to get that image out of his mind. But what did David do? David premeditated his sin. David started down that dark road to where that eventually 
we know now David and Bathsheba. Achan in Joshua chapter 7, verse 19 through 26, when Israel was fighting against their enemy and Israel was losing, and Joshua went to the Lord and said, Lord, why? Why can't we stand against our enemy? And the Lord said, because there's sin in the camp. So Joshua got all Israel together, the head of the, uh, uh, of the tribes, brought them all together. It says that, that Achan came, and it was known that Achan transgressed. And if you look at what Achan did, Achan saw the Babylonian garment, the gold, the silver. He saw, he coveted, he took, and he hid. Not only did David's sin affect him, as what J.R. Miller said in Little Slips, not only did it hurt him, it hurt his entire family, his entire nation. Achan, not only his sin hurt him, his entire family was killed. Ananias and Sapphira. Acts chapter 5. Is there something in our lives that we know is wrong and that we're harboring it? That we know it's wrong and we think about it? We don't want to just get rid of it. It's there. Verse 7 through 11, David, David's nature, the second thing, is going to be David's nearness. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Verse 11, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. David's nearness. Maybe it's something you haven't thought about or maybe you haven't thought about it in a while. How close are you to God? I didn't say how close God is to you because Nathan said this last week. God never moves. If anybody moves, it's us. God the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is always the same. It's us who moves. Let me ask you this. How near is God to you? How close of a relationship do you have with the Lord? You look in verse 7 through 11. These are all things that David was asking forgiveness for to be clean, to be whiter than snow, to hear the joy and gladness, that, that joy of our salvation, to heal his broken bones, hide his face from his sin, blot out my iniquities, create a clean heart in me, renew a right spirit within me. You have to understand that for at least nine months, David did not have fellowship with God. David was guilty of adultery, of murder, and for at least nine months, David did not have God's presence with him. He could not feel God. He could not have that closeness that he had back, I believe it's in Second Samuel 7, when he prayed and, and thanked the Lord for establishing his house. 
Samson, Judges chapter 16, with Delilah. We read that, and Samson was so proud and arrogant. The last part of verse 20 says this, He did not know the Lord left him. Has the Lord left you? It's often been said, where can I find God? You'll find him right where you left him. You'll find him right where you left him when you decided to take that wrong instead of mortifying it and clinging to God and staying close to him. How much of the time in our human relationships do we live at distance with each other? Husbands and wives get upset with each other. They're at distance for a while until they can come back together. Families. Guard vigilantly and strive prayerfully against that which creates a conscious distance between God and your soul. Is it the world? Come out of it. Is it the creature? Relinquish it. Is it the flesh? Mortify it. Is it sin? Forsake it. Is it unbelief? Nail it to the cross. Oh, let nothing separate you from Christ. No earthly good or carnal delight cause a distance or coldness or shyness between God and your soul. Give Jesus your undivided heart and let God be your all in all. Then shall, you ha- then shall your happy experience be. You are near, O Lord. How many professing Christians do really obtain personal access to and enjoy conscious com- uh, communion with the Holy One? What percentage of real Christians are actually accustomed to do so? Also, what multitudes have been deceived by Satan into supposing that all they have to do is get down on their knees, plead the name of Christ, and automatically they obtain audience with the Most High God? Not so. It still holds good that behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, neither is his ear heavy, that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear. The principles of divine government knows no alteration. And allowed and unconfessed sins act as an impassable barrier between the soul and God. We can, as humans, we have a habit of doing things by routine. We get in habits, doing things the same way, the same thing, over and over and over again. We, as God's people, who say that we know the truth, we have the truth, we have the very Mind of God is what Nathan said earlier. But are we in a rut of religion? Are we doing things in habit that we really aren't consciously aware? That are we communing with God? When we read our Bibles, when we pray, when we listen to a message, when we sing songs, are we consciously aware that God is listening? We're, we're singing, we're praying, to, we're, we're reading our scripture to him. He is, he is here. I want that communion with him. Or do we do it just out of routine? 
Well, I read my Bible today. I prayed today. I did this today. I did that today. And, and, and so I'm a good Christian because I, it sounds like fundamentalism again, where we dot all the I's and cross all the T's. And because we do all these things, oh, yeah, I must be a good Christian. I'm okay with God. But are you really? How long has it been since you had a spiritual checkup? It's an amazing thing that we are so concerned about our physical bodies. We make sure to go to the doctor and we get a checkup and make sure that we're, we're that this, this body of, of flesh is, is in good working order. Well, let me ask you this. How long has it been since you gave yourself a good spiritual checkup? When's the last time that you just stopped everything and you got along with God and you poured your heart out and you begged him to show you your heart. Show me, is my heart right with you? Show me, I want that communion. I want you, dear God. How long has it been since we have done that? <clears throat> Perhaps too long. Perhaps too long. Verse 12 through 19. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You, would, you will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in the right sacrifices and burnt offerings and the whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. David's nature, David's nearness, and thirdly, David's need. David's need. He said in verse 12, restore, restore. What did David need? David needed restoration. David needed to repent from his sin. He needed the Lord to cover his sin, to wash away his sin, to blot out his iniquity. He needed God to allow him to draw near to him again. And that sin be done away with. And he says restored. And I think it's very interesting. Sometimes, and I don't know about you. We've been in church long enough where, where we've, we've seen it over and over again. Ask the questions many times. And perhaps maybe this may be one answer. I don't know. I think it might be in my opinion. You wonder why it seems like there's dead Christians. That's not a right term. How can a Christian who has Christ be dead? How can a Christian who has the abundant life, that joy of salvation that David spoke of, how can that Christian who, who is looking forward to heaven, how can they be dead to the God and the things of God? How can they be dead to, to the, the activities of the Christian life? Seemingly dead. And I'm not judging, because I can point all my fingers right back to me. 
So I'm rowing in the same boat. But I want you to notice something. Look, in, if you have your Bibles open, David says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Then look what he says. Then I will teach transgressors your way. Restoration, repentance leads to a response. David does something. Because he now has that relationship with God restored, now he's back where he should be, close to God. Now David's doing something. He said, I'm going to teach transgressors your ways. Sinners will return to you. Why? Because David has a prime example. He knows exactly where they could be. Deliver me from blood guiltless. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Open my lips, my mouth will declare your praise. What's our response? What's our, our life giving? What, what's coming out of our mouths? What's coming out of our lives? What's coming out? Do people see the joy of salvation? Do they hear the songs of praise? And I guess, because verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David's heart was broken and humbled because of his sin. Does sin bother us? Does sin break your heart? Does sin, your sin, humble you before God? Or is it like what I just read? We think we'll just get down on our knees, we'll name the name of Christ, and we got an audience with the Lord, and yet we're deceiving ourselves. Draw near with a true heart. This is a principal qualification. A true heart is one that beats true unto God. It denotes sincerity and contrast to hypocrisy. It is not the reverent posture of the body or the language of the lips with which God is chiefly concerned, but rather with the heart, the seat of affections. They who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth, or their performance is utterly futile. The mere outward performance of religious duties, no matter how precisely undertaken, is not sufficient. It is the sincerity of our hearts which God has chief regard to in all our approaches unto him. God will bear with infirmities, but not with hypocrisy. What's our attitude towards sin? How much have you grieved over your sin? How much have you been humbled by your sin? How much have you felt grieved for your sin? I believe the Bible teaches, and and I know it does, and I'm a firm believer in this, that we're supposed to pray without ceasing. We should be living in an attitude of prayer. Praying all the time about everything. Communing with God. Now let me ask you this. If we do not live in an attitude of repentance toward our sin, because of our sin nature and the secret faults that we don't even know that we do, how can we be in an attitude of prayer where, where God is going to hear us? 
if repentance and attitude of repentance does not precede that attitude of prayer, are we just deceiving ourselves? Are we just deceiving ourselves? David's nature, David's nearness, and David's need. Our Father, we ask and pray that you will take what was given this day. Father, I just pray and I ask, Holy Spirit of God, that as I asked before, that this will not just be a a message that we just went to church, we feel good, and because we did, we know we did our duty. Father, how serious are we in our Christian life? How serious are we about what we watch, what we hear, what we see? How seriously do we take our sin? Father in heaven, you know our hearts. You know each and every one of us. Hopefully each and every one of us want to draw closer to you. Hopefully we want to know you better, know you more. Hopefully we would want to have that life that, as Kit says, would show forth the fragrance of Christ to a lost and dying world. I know there's nothing we can do about our tainted sin nature, not until glory. But Father, that doesn't excuse us for not being aware of it and fighting and trying to live in that attitude of repentance that, Father, that you can restore us as David and that, Father, that you could perhaps use us to reach other people. You could use us to be more of a mouthpiece. Our songs would be louder. Our voice would be heard more. And Father, we would not be so downtrodden with this world because the joy of our salvation would would be overflowing within our hearts. I just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would take what has been said and that you would help each and every one of us to deal appropriately and honestly with the one who we say we love. We ask for grace. We ask for mercy, for forgiveness. Father, I just ask that you would restore us in Christ's name, for his sake, his honor, his glory. Amen.